talk about following the Sermon on the Mount, you know, just get to the point. Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, I have, uh, Zev and I have a brilliant assistant today, Madeline. She's going to be running around with a mic. So uh, you actually, you have to get in position off to the side, and then you watch. And then when you see, uh, for, for example, you see this guy right here, Madeline? Madeline, see this guy right there with the distinguished gray hair? He, he will, well, yes, that's another point. The one on the front, he will definitely have a question, so watch when his hand starts quivering. Okay, this morning, uh, glad to see you all. Uh, we are going to um, work on our assignment together, which was what? Outline of the, now, in traditional terms, Christian terms, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, but we're also trying to look at it from another point of view, um, probably the, the real point of view in a sense, and that would be calling it Debar One. Debar One. Why? Uh, yes, it is the first Devar. We actually pronounce it Devar, but it looks Debar, but Hebrew Devar. Devar one is the first of five, but what is Devar? I warm. Uh, warm. Who said word? Getting real hot. Word and thing. Word and thing. Like, in the, in the sense of using it as a thing, it's like what? It's like a... It's a thing. It's a thing. It's an object. But it's also a word in, in, in the Jewish mindset. A word isn't just like one word. It's what? It's a message. And then it expands out in the, in the way Matthew laid it out. Because remember, Zev taught you he's following what? The model, the structure of, of Matthew. What's he following? What's the template? The five books of Moses, right? So Devar 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Each one of them is representative of one of the books of Moses. Not these like slavishly following the content of each of the books of Moses. There's echoes. But what you're doing is seeing Matthew making a case that leads us to the grand conclusion that Zev ended on last week, which was what? Who is Jesus? What is Matthew saying by this structure? Ah, God! We will never deny that forever and ever. Yes, Jesus is deity. But that's not what Matthew's point is. Ah, the new Moses. From where? Where did he get this? When uh, Zeb taught you this? No. I mean, not that we would ever deny that either. But no. I remember Zeb went to Deuteronomy 18, and when God said through Moses, I shall raise up, God said, I will raise up unto you a prophet like unto me. God will do that. Do you remember when Moses said that? 
Deuteronomy 18, and then Zeb took you through that, and what did we find out? That Matthew was saying what? That Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, therefore he's the new prophet, and what did God say, what did God end, how did God end that whole encounter that Zeb was talking about when they were up on the mountain with Jesus? What did God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so therefore, the foundational stone of the whole book gets dropped down on us. Jesus is he's more than just a prophet. Matthew's not denying his deity. But he's starting at this baseline for the Jewish people to make the case what? He is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. He's the new prophet. And therefore, what? Listen to him. Yes, sir. As far as timeline goes, from the oral tradition of the teachings where they were teaching in synagogues and whatnot and spreading this message to the time it was actually written down and constructed, what is that timeline? So the book of Matthew, the construct, and you follow? Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, the short answer is no one knows for sure. Uh, there's like literature that would you know, drown the oceans on the timelines, the conjectures, and the composition of the Gospels, okay? One thing I will say, and Zev might want to make one comment about this because he's got a lot of knowledge on it, but you know in the oral tradition cultures around the world of which Jews were part of, people were trained to do what from infancy? They weren't like us. Well, stories, but you had to remember them. So there's a technique called memnonics. It's a memnonic technique. It's, you learn how to teach, and you learn how to remember through uh, tricks, techniques. And it's very true that the ancient people could remember vast amounts of material accurately. Uh, you want to wax on just for a minute about the Africans? I guess not. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> uh, Kunta Kinte and the whole trip of... Uh, Jen, what was it? Um, roots! They go back and they, got, they find these geniuses that they have the genealogies down. It's just the way that human beings can process information. So the scary part is, how long was it? They lived in a different age and world than we do. And that wasn't a major concern. It, like the concern we have, oh my word, you mean like 10 or 20 years past? There must have been a lot of distortion would be answered by them, what? With the old Jewish proverb. What's a good student, Zev? I'm really putting it to Zev today. Too many questions. What's a good student likened to? A sound cistern that doesn't leak. Famous Jewish proverb. What's a good student? A sound tub cistern that does not leak. So, I mean, this is, was prized. I mean, we teach, well, your girls don't go to school. Do you take notes? Yeah. You sit there and take notes, right? Yeah. The ancients didn't do that. You sat there and listened. And then you, boy, how can I remember this? Bang, 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 bang. And, and some of them were geniuses at it. So does it help a little bit? In my view, since I consider Jesus to be a prophet, 
it must be before 70 A.D. Why? Because Matthew has Jesus predict, along with the other Gospels, the destruction of Jerusalem. When did that happen? 70 A.D. So if he, if what some scholars have suggested, because that freaks them out, because if Jesus is a prophet, then he's in touch with the supernatural, and then what he's saying must be true, that's a little scary for some people, so what they do is they backdate it and say, oh, well, the Gospels were written after the event and made it to look like what? Jesus was a prophet and predicted it. It has to be within that time period. It can't be beyond that if, if Jesus is telling the truth. Yes, sir? What's important about in looking at what a prophet is, it's more about forth-telling than foretelling. It's more about forth-telling than foretelling. The difference is the prophet is one who brings a message of warning or consolation to their generation. And versus, versus predicting the future. Okay. Because and you see both in Jesus' life. Now, it's true to say that classical prophecy in part was looking to the future because in part what they were looking at is number one, the inevitable consequences of the social and religious problems they were addressing if those weren't mended, and number two, the rising power of Mesopotamia that was acting as a threat to national existence. And they saw that as the potential instrument in God's hand to effect the consequences of the people's misbehavior. Okay, so yeah, there is a future element, but it's like a wonderful quote that uh, my spouse had up on her bulletin board for many years. The future is coming, only you can decide where it's going. Okay, so half a little bit of an answer, and we want to talk about it later, we can. Now, uh, let's get to the, today's issues. Uh, we have a guest, Leanne Ward. Mm -hmm. Uh, she was in Israel, and we were at the place where the sermon, I'm sorry, the Devar One took place, and she's got a great uh, set of pictures for us that she's going to show us, so that we can all get a feel of the fact that this took place in time-space history, right? Okay, so let Correct. us have it. Thank you for that yep. introduction. Good morning. Yes, we are going to go to the Church of the Beatitudes, and that's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I thought I would start with some pictures when we were on the Sea of Galilee, because that was a wonderful, calming experience for each of us on the trip. It seemed like it gave us time to sit and meditate. Uh, there was music. There was quiet. So we'll let you have a glimpse of that. This was the boat. This was the boat that we were on. There was probably music playing. Tom Pansino had his Irish flute. That was beautiful. When we first got on the boat, we even had the Star Spangled Banner played. But this is sort of setting the um, 
mood and, and atmosphere of, of what so many of us felt on this trip. Yes, yes it was. Each place that we went, we had a meditation uh, or devotional or a teaching by one of our illustrious leaders. Uh, and then some of our participants, our travelers also would read scripture for us. This gave us a feel for each place that we were in as we uh, walked in the footsteps of Jesus. You can see what we could see from our boat. Um, I felt that there was a chance just to reflect and meditate, and I think there were some tears, there were some goosebumps. And Rabbi Spitzer, in his journal, we, most of us put an entry in a journal, and he was impressed, even though he'd been on the Sea of Galilee many times, to be with a group of Christians, and he said, as music played, I was so taken by the transformation of our group. There really was a sense of place here on the Kinneret. And I think that's what most of us felt. It was sort of like a centering, I think, because Jesus uh, taught so much around the area of the Sea of Galilee. Where's my little thingy? There it is. a sense of what we felt on that journey. Also, I believe that we are looking north here, and the uh, Church of the Beatitudes is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So from our boat, we went back to a bus. And here's a little bit of commercialism. I do feel that one of the reasons I liked, and I think so many of us felt a presence and a transformation on the Sea of Galilee, in that it was not commercialized. At least where we were, it wasn't commercialized. And it just gave you that sense of peace. We were entering the uh, area of the Church of Beatitude, obviously. We are on the north side of the church. The Sea of Galilee would be that way, behind you, or behind the church. 
and we would go up, we went up into a shady spot, and once again, we had our meditation and a chance to reflect and to hear the story again. That is Bruce. Um, he was giving the meditation that day. Then we walked down uh, and were able to go into the Church of the Beatitudes. I believe it's a Catholic church and um, made from B-A-S-A-L-T, basalt. It was beautiful. This was the uh, picture over the door going into the nave. And somebody told me this means the, the wording, something about the creed or Christo. Yeah, it's eff effectively the, that which to be, the Beatitudes to be believed is the best I can do with it. Okay. What, what uh, language is this? Latin. Thank you. And the church is eight-sided, octagonal, and uh, with the eight Beatitudes shown in the windows. It was quiet and a chance to reflect in here also. Why does it have eight sides? Oh, because of the eight uh, blessings, the eight beatitudes. We're on the uh, lakes, looking at the lake side of the church at this point, and the church was placed at the top of the mountain, uh, really a large hill just like the Sea of Galilee is really a large lake. I imagine Jesus would have been up here at the top. Then the area below the church forms what seems like a natural amphitheater. So the crowds would have gathered, the 12 disciples, and they assume there were crowds. Nancy took this picture, which uh, shows it pretty well. I read in the journal that our illustrious pastor jumped a fence and took a picture, <laughs> but I wasn't able to get that from him, so. <laughs> I don't know, but I didn't jump any fences. Yes, the weather that day was calm and peaceful, tranquil, and I felt this area was, was the same, but once again, the Sea of Galilee kind of set the mood for the day of seeing a lot of sites where Jesus taught around the Sea of Galilee. Does anybody have anything that they want to add who was on the trip, or maybe we don't have time? Oh, sure we do. Okay. Do you want to ask a question? Or? Yeah, sure. Okay. There were several people in here who were on the trip also. It was a blessing to be on that trip. All right, well, thank you. <clears throat>
move the slide back one. That would just kind of leave the picture up that where where this basically took place. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Right. No, no, don't do that. Just leave it run out. But uh, this gives you a feel for where Devar one could have taken place. And if, uh, the rest of you who are on the trip, any of those who've gone to Israel, you know, the question is always, was it exactly here? Or was it exactly here that the master stood? And then after a while, it's like, you should be just happy that you're there in the proximity, right? So this is the proximity of where it took place. So let's get down now to what he actually talked about. Um, Zev, last week, and do you all have a handout? Because I'd like you to get this out now. Uh, this is my outline. It's not right. It's just one way of doing it. Did you bring yours with you, though? Do you have your outlines with you? Why did it get quiet in here? <laughs> I'm just kidding you. But this is one way of looking at setting out the Sermon on the Mount. So it goes left to right, and it goes down. So if you start in the left-hand column, I put the uh, title on there, Prophetic Introduction 5, 2 through 16. Uh, I consider this Jesus to be like prophetically introducing his whole topic, and Zev talked about this last week. Um, and as he was reading through them, uh, I think he asked us as we got near the end, uh, how many of you feel comfortable? You remember him asking you that? When we went through the Beatitudes, and what was the answer? Uh, yeah, we didn't feel too comfortable. Um, now, let me give you two things that kind of helped me when I think about the shocking nature of this content. 500 years before uh, Jesus, think about it, 500 years before Jesus, a man named Socrates created a parable to illustrate the ascent of the human soul towards rationality. Do you know it? Vaguely! Nine! You have to know this. This is crucial. Okay. So here's the story as Socrates tells it. You are to imagine a group of people sitting in a cave. Their necks are chained together. They've never been able to turn around. The only light that comes into the cave is from behind them, and they're staring at a wall. You got the picture? Well, walking in front of them at times are animals, creatures, people, all kinds of things going on. And the only thing they can see are what? The shadows on the wall. They can't look around and see the sun coming through. They can only, and they've never been able to look around. So they watch their whole life. Then, of course, as they're watching shadows, they start doing what? What do human beings do? What's that? Oh, that's that. Oh, this is what it means. Did you notice that when those two shadows come by together, then the next thing happens? And they start trying to figure out what they're walking. Plus, there's an echo chamber in the, can in the uh, den. And so noises echo, and they get associated with certain objects. And then they think that those things are making the the objects. And so the whole thing goes on, and then he says, imagine what would happen if you grabbed one of these people and took them and forced them up out of the den and showed them the light. Now here's his words. It's, it's pretty cool. Suppose once more that uh, he is reluctantly dragged up a steep and rugged ascent, 
and held fast until he was forced into the presence of the, uh, the top itself, is he not likely to be uh, pained and irritated when he approaches the light? His eyes will be dazzled and he will not be able to see anything at all of what are now called realities. Can you get it? Can you imagine it? Have you ever walked out of a dark place into the bright sunlight and went like that? Is that the light's fault? Right. So one way I think, now this is 500 years before Jesus. So Socrates is giving us a template here. If somebody could come along, in effect, he's saying, and give you the, the vision of the way things really are, it would be so illuminating and so bright that the vast majority of people, in fact, all people, would do what at first? And of course, he go. You remember the rest of it? It goes through the whole thing. You got to bring the people up, train them. Look at this little thing. You look in the moonlight and the starlight. You can't show them the starlight at first. You teach them, and finally, you bring them out. Well, to me, when I'm reading Jesus at that point, it's like what? Coming out of a cave and getting hit in the face with the full-blown California sun, and the, our first reaction is to wince, but as you think about it, what's the problem? Whoa, 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 what? Well, yeah, but I mean, what's the problem with the whole thing? We're wincing, we're, we're, we're in pain, what's the problem? Reality hurts. Now, here's the second one to help. A little bit, maybe. So I learned a new word in the last month. It's called torturosity. All the physicians in the room will know this word, right? Torturosity. So <clears throat> I'm reading my medical report that got done on the MRI that was done on me. And I keep seeing this word torturous. Torturosity. Like, wow. So um, I, uh, I look it up. And of course, torturous, what does it mean? Yeah, curl around and move around like it twisted. <laughs> so anyways, um, I, 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 I'm sitting there with the, yeah, torturous. Yes, it's a torturous path. And so I'm, I'm sitting there with the doc, and I said, yeah, man, I saw like all these words torturous. And he says, yeah. He said, come here. And he takes me down the hallway, and we look at the MRI. It's like, have you ever seen an MRI of your insides? It's like crazy. It's like looking into the Hubble telescope. And he goes, good. And he goes, and he's like showing me the layers of my inside, and we get down to where the one little problem was. He says, see, it's not really that big of a problem. And I said, well, what about the torturosity? And he said, well, look at this. And he shows me my veins, and they're all going like this inside. They're all crooked. He says, well, at least they're clear. And I took great offense. I said, are you calling me twisted? <laughs> that <laughs> So when I got shown my condition, torturosity is what happens when the lawyers actually get a hold of the law. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying a word. When I got shown my condition, then what? It is what it is. Who's to be mad at? So the masters did what? 
This is the kingdom of God as God sees it. Shocking, isn't it? Yes, we're supposed to fall down and be stunned that what we have considered to be reality is really torture. It's screwed up. We're the ones that have the problem. Now, <clears throat> drop down with me a little bit, and let's look at the thesis, 5.17 through 20. I think this is the thesis of the sermon. I don't know if you agree with me, but let's find somebody that will read it for us and talk about it for a minute. The thesis of the sermon. What's a thesis? Do you always use a formal thesis? Do you announce a thesis, Pastor Dave? No. You I just can. slide into it and help them. Slide in and expect them to pick up the thesis later on. <laughs> John, I can read it. I can read it. Oh, thank you. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will be any means will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so it's kind, of a, it's kind of a, it's a thesis and it's got two parts to it. What's the first part? I am not here to do what? I'm not here to destroy the law. Just leave it at that. I'm not here to destroy the law and the prophet. We're not, I'm not destroying anything. On the other hand, I am here to, do, to tell you something. And now I have to do a little bit of cultural equivalency. Uh, temporarily white out Pharisees and scribes and write in there, write in, unless your righteousness ex exceeds that of people who focus on external rules and regulations, you shall not en enter into the, kingdom of into the kingdom of heaven. Why do I want to do that? Because when we Gentiles for 2,000 years have read this, scribes and Pharisees suddenly gets into our heads that what? that this is a Jewish problem. They screwed up the Bible, and now Jesus has to come and straighten it all. No. No. This is the human condition. Human beings are legalistic. And we look at the outside, the, the exterior, the letter of the law, and here the master does what Zeb was talking about last week, doing that furrow thing, right? Lifnim mishurat hadin. Within the furrows of the law. I didn't come to break it, but I'm telling you that what you're being taught and what is being displayed in your culture as a, as a supposed standard of what the law was about is not what the law was about. That's what he's doing. Which we could say at any time and place in church history, couldn't we? Pretty much. We could, we could go someplace and say, you know, what you guys are doing here isn't really comporting with what Jesus taught the kingdom of God. So it's not a Jewish problem, and I need you to understand that because we have so many problems in our world today because that's the way people have read that Bible, read that scripture that way. He's not making it a statement against the Jews. So, another thing he's not saying, 
which I think some well-meaning Christians have misunderstood. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the external ones, the ones who are focused on external righteousness, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can take that, and a lot of people have done it, to him saying, you're not going to go to heaven, i.e., you're not going to be saved. Is that what he's saying? Oh, now here's what we missed, uh, and we tried to talk about it a little bit, but Zev and I were talking about this. When he's talking about this, he's saying the kingdom is where? It's here. It's now. He's not talking about going to heaven. He's saying if you want to enter into the experience of the kingdom of God here and now, then you have to go this way that I'm teaching you. You can't stay back in this old way. If you stay back in the old way, you're not going to enter in and experience God now. Okay? So don't take it as he's saying, yeah, all Jews go to hell. Which is like, have you heard this on TV? This is how some people have taught this. Well, they didn't, they didn't follow Jesus. So they, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that it's like you have to uh, embrace a certain outlook, and when you do, when you let God take over, then you experience heaven now, the kingdom of heaven now. You wanted to say, I think. No? I thought I saw something. Okay. So, you think, you think that's a good thesis for a sermon? I'm not here to destroy the law. I'm here to fulfill it. And I'm also here to show you that the, what the law was trying to get us to look at and do is a lot different than what you're seeing practiced. So he goes through all of these different uh, next column over, please. Kingdom of heaven, Torah being. The first part of the sermon is what we are, our being. And uh, Suzanne Campbell has helped me a lot with this, talking about what we are, being, being. Jesus is focusing on being. He's taking the laws that have been given, and he's asking us not to just look at the externals, but to look at what we are in relationship to those laws. And it's sort of frightening. Now, I don't want to, I wish I could have more time, but I don't, so I got to jump to the conclusion, and then maybe I'll come back and show you something interesting if I have time. Look at 548. I think this is his summary statement when he goes through all of these examples of states of being that the law stipulated uh, murder and divorce and uh, so forth and so on. Uh, when he gets to 548, there's the conclusion of that section. Now, somebody read it for me. Matthew 548. This is the, the big ending of this part. Wow. Has this caused a lot of distress for people? So the conclusion on being, according to the Torah, be perfect even as God is perfect. And our immediate response is what? Impossible. And now understand, Jesus would never tell you to do something that's impossible, so we've got a translation problem here. Uh, I'll tell you the Greek. Zev will tell you the Hebrew and the Aramaic. The Greek word that's used here, remember Jesus spoke Aramaic, but they translated it into Greek. The Greek word is telos. It means fully developed or mature. It does not mean without any flaw or sin or anything like that. It means a mature development. And when he says, I want you to be telos like God is, does he give you in that section right there, 
the last part of Matthew 5, 47, 46, 40. Does he give you an example of what God is like that he's asking us to be like? Can anyone see this? Uh, it has to do with love, yes. What is God like? How does God show his love in this world? Yes! Oh, it's crazy! God indiscriminately lavishes all this love on the world, on wicked people. He makes wheat grow on sinners' farms. That's agape. And so then after the master goes through that, and he said, this is the way God, you know, you heard you. You're supposed to love your neighbor. And then what? Love your neighbor. What does he say? What's the sides? Yes, we love our neighbors. Did you read the sermon? Love your neighbor. No, no. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. Didn't you see that? He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and, and on the side. And it's okay to hate your enemy, too. You didn't see that in the text? He's citing, he's, he's bringing up the way people looked at it. Love your neighbor, but don't take it too crazy. Don't take it too far. And then he said, well, God's not like that. How's God? He loves everybody. So therefore, I want you to be fully developed in agape, which we will talk about later on in the course. He doesn't, he's not saying be without sin. He's saying, I want you to be like God in this sense. And later on, we'll see why. Now, let's hear the Aramaic and the <clears throat> Hebrew on this. Okay. Now, I know all of you know Aramaic, but... The word that Jesus uses in the Aramaic is a very interesting word. Gamire. Gamire. And the root is gimel mem resh, like G-M-R. Gamar. It means to complete or finish to complete or finish. In other words, what he's saying is, be completed. Be a finished product. Okay? The Hebrew equivalent, which you'll find in the Hebrew translations, is the word shalem. Um, wait a minute. There we go. Shalem, which also means complete. But the word shalem, does that remind anybody of a Hebrew word you might actually know? Shalom. Okay, shalom does not mean simply the absence of hostilities. It means wholeness, intactness, completeness. Do you begin to get the, pro, the idea here? You are to be completed, whole human beings, even as God is complete and whole. Does this sound a little more hopeful? Okay. Another way of putting it, there's a marvelous Buddhist statement I once heard. You're perfect just as you are, although you could use a little improvement. And in our weeks to come, we'll talk a little bit more how to go on with this. Okay, so 
that, that's the first section on being. Now, I want to just play for five minutes with something to help you get a taste for what Jesus is doing. Something that's very relevant to our culture. And I, with all of my heart, I'm telling you, I am not making a political statement. I'm using something that is in our culture, relevant big time, to anchor it to Jesus' teaching. I'm not taking sides. I'm not making a political statement. Do you believe me? Thank you. Look at the first part of the sequence when the master starts out in the, in the sermon on the section of being, when he says, you have, the ancients have said, you shall not murder. What verse is that, Jim? You shall not murder? 521. What's the next thing he says? But I say unto you what? What's the first thing he says? Keep reading. If, you, if you're what? If you're angry with your brother, you're already on this slope. Now he gives another illustration. If you say about another person because you're angry with them and you say, oh, you got, do you got the translation? Yours says just fool. Does anybody have the straight up uh, uh, Aramaic Hebrew? Raka! Scream that out at the window sometime when you're done. Raka! Well, yeah, no one will know, right? What, what are you saying when you say Raka? Quick uh, uh, essence of it? Empty, vain, without substance. Next, then he said, and then if you say to somebody, what's the word that they translate it? After raka. So you start angry, then it's raka, empty person. And then he says, and you could say what about a person? You fool. Guess what the Greek word is? Moros. What's moros? A moron. A Greek word, another Greek word that's used later in the New Testament, not here, is idiates. What's an idiates? An idiot. What's an idiot? An idiot, an idiotes, is somebody that's so alone in their private opinions that they, that they kind of appear to be stupid or crazy. Idiosyncratic. So here's the way that we can talk about This is the sequence. He said, look, you heard the Bible says, don't kill people. But I'm telling you, it all gets started when what? First of all, you're angry. Second thing you say about, you look at another human being made in the living image of God and you say about that person, you idiot! Moron! I'm not making a political statement. I'm saying, what did the Master tell us? What's he teaching us here? That the, the process of killing people doesn't start one day when you jump out of bed and say, hey, I got a great plan. Let's go down and waste those people on the corner. It starts when what? When you've got something in your heart against another person and you're angry, then you characterize them. This is the first process that scholars call dehumanization. You dehumanize the person. You've got to make a name up for them. You've got to put them in another category. Because if you can do that, then what? And then, and now you're not talking about a true living God, a person made in the image of God, but now you're talking about what? The other. And then the other, once they're the other, then they're easily identified as what? Morons, idiots. 
And then once you get the people, group of people in that category, then what? Well, it's, then it goes... Then it's, it's, a, it's a process. It's, easy, it's a lot easier to me. You know what? One of the most horrifying things I... Remember when we watched that Vietnam? We didn't watch it together. But remember that one guy? He said, after that first day when I killed my first Vietnamese person, he said, I never killed another Vietnamese soldier. The only thing I killed was gooks. Now, what did he mean by that? He's trying to teach us something. A Vietnam War hero, uh, he, he, after his first kill, he said, I never killed another, Vietnam, an, another Vietnamese soldier after that day. The only thing I killed after that was gooks. Things, objects, not humans. You see what Jesus is doing? He does that in every one of these. He, he takes the external law and he says, if you think just because you're not out wasting people that that's what God had in mind, no, God actually wants you to be like what? Like you're crazy. Like, hey, I love people that are totally different than me. Let's get together. Exactly. And it, that's, that's that Jewish thing of the furrows. You, you know, you've got the externals up here on the top, and you can ride along those, but you've got to get down into the depths of what, what is that text actually saying to us about our heart. So yes, and no, it's not enough in God's eyes that we don't just physically not commit adultery. It's, a, it's what God wants is what? That we... Well, what did the book of Leviticus say? Seven times. Be holy, because I'm holy. And God says, be loving. So yeah, you're actually supposed to evolve to the place where you look at beautiful women and say, wow, doesn't my sister have a great DNA package? And then you leave it at that. Right? Yes, good. Go. I'm glad you used the word objectification because this is exactly what he's saying. You cannot treat another human being as an object. They are a subject. And what you're actually doing when you insult a person is that you are not simply insulting them. You are de you are you're devaluing the image of God in them. It's sacrilege. It's, in effect, sacrilege. Okay? It reminds me of the uh, New Yorker cartoon that uh, somebody on uh, one of the top TV shows was uh, saying his wife gave him this old New Yorker cartoon that he had framed. Shows these two dogs in a bar, and one of them saying, it's not enough that dogs succeed. Cats must fail. And that's the climate we're in. And what Jesus is saying is, if you're looking at things from God's point of view, dogs have to say that cats have to succeed as much as dogs. All right, beautiful. Now, find a 6-1... 
and compare it with 633. I'm moving over to the next column, the third column. We're now into the uh, be, uh, doing, Torah doing, kingdom of heaven, Torah doing. Somebody read 6.1 for us, please, and then somebody else read 6.33. Six. So this starts the next section. You see how he moved from being to what? What's the focus here? Doing. And what's, what's, the, what's this... The thing he first says, the principle. What's the first thing that he says? Uh, be, be careful, be wary. Of what? Why are you doing? What you're, are you doing it to be seen by other people? If you are, then unfortunately what? You do get rewarded. We give prizes all over the place, all over the world for people that are doing good for other people, right? We do. We, we honor one another. Uh, you get your reward that way if that's what you're doing it for, the Master says. What? Go ahead. So. Ah, man, yeah, this is what I want to say, though. We, 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 eventually, what you have to get to the place when you, when you see him excoriating the Pharisees, you have to look at that and say, oh, dear, I'm one, too. Because if you don't, then we, we wind up reading the Bible incorrectly and we wind up thinking that hypocrisy is a unique Jewish problem. And uh, we know what about that? Everybody's a hypocrite on one level or another. We're all struggling with it. It just so happened, time and place, that they were the ones there exhibiting it. But it's not unique to them. Uh, okay, I just want to clarify that. Okay, so a hypokritos in, in Greek literally means somebody that puts a mask on. It's somebody that puts a mask on and acts out a part. So that's what he's saying here, that you've got to be really careful when you're doing what you think God wants you to do, that you're not acting out a, a part with a view towards what? Yes, making yourself look good. Oh, dear. Who hasn't fallen into that? Now, and he, this yours conspicuous piety award goes to. <laughs> right, 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 right. Now, he goes through all these things of doing, 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 doing. You get down to 633, which I think is the conclusion or the, the key statement. What does 633 say? In reference to the subject of action or doing, what does the master say? The whole thing gets summed up with what? 6.33. Seek first the kingdom and the righteousness of it, and everything else will be added to you. So now we have the two, we have under the, I'm sorry I don't have an eraser. I wish I did, but we've got being, and what was the big idea, if you follow my way of looking at things, What's the big idea that the Master has on the topic of being in this sermon? You should be what? You should be like God. In what way?
agape love. Right? Be perfect the way in love the way God is. Be fully developed the way God is. Love sinners. Love deplorables. Um, love what? Everyone. Okay? Then on doing, what does he tell you? To, what's the essence of it? Love, doing, seek, kingdom, and it's or the righteousness, the true righteousness, not the external righteousness, not the righteousness that people see, but the true righteousness of God's kingdom, which is what? It's just another way of saying, what did Leviticus say? Be holy, for I am holy. So he takes the two essential attributes of God, love and holiness, and basically tells us that this is the path forward. If that's the way you want to represent God in the world, this is the way to do it. Is it making sense to you? Tracking? All right, now let's get to the end then, and then we'll talk about whatever you want. Look at 7.12. I think this is the uh, synthetic conclusion of the sermon, and then Zev is going to come and teach on this for a while. What does 7.12 say? So in the end, this is, this, is, this is the conclusion. So what's the conclusion of the sermon? Do unto others the way you want done to you, and if you do that, what does he say? And we're going to keep going with this in a couple of weeks, next couple of weeks. If you do that, then what? This is, he says, when, when you say this is the law and the prophets, what are you saying? Doing for others the way you want done to you is the law and the prophets. He's making an equivalency. What's he saying? That, that, that's it. That's it. Now, come and tell us about um, some of the great rabbis. Okay. And this is what we're going to end on, and then next week you come and bring your questions, and uh, we'll go forward. So. Two of the greatest sages of the rabbinic period in Israel was one who preceded Jesus and one who followed him. The preceder was Hillel the Elder. And Hillel was known for his mild-mannered approach to things, as opposed to his great partner Shammai, was the one who carried the measuring rod with which he chased away people he felt didn't measure up. Well, one of the most famous stories about Hillel and Shammai is that someone came to Shammai and said, um, teach me the entire Torah while standing on one foot. And Shammai chased him away. So he came to Hillel and with the same request. And Hillel stood on one foot. I have to lean on the lectern here. And said, that which is hateful to thyself, do not do to another. That is the Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go study. Okay. Now, the whole statement is, has to be kept in mind. That which is hateful to thyself, do not do to another. He's being, as it were, minimalist. 
At the very least, you know, what's the first phrase of the Hippocratic Oath, doctors? Do no harm. <laughs> Do no harm to anyone. Okay? That which is hateful to thyself, do not do to another. That is the Torah in a nutshell. The rest is commentary. Okay, now go study. Now, here I want to add something to what I wrote here. Okay, because the words for go study in Aramaic are zil gemor. Go and study. And it's the same root as gemire. To study means to complete yourself. That is the essence of study. Zil gemor. Go and be complete. Complete the process that begins with that which is hateful to thyself, do not do to another. And your text is all the commentaries on that, which is the Torah. Now, in the century after Jesus, probably the greatest Torah sage was the great Rabbi Akiva, who organized the oral tradition and paved the way for its later codification. And he basically said, Ve'ahavta re'echa kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself, which is Leviticus. And then he added, Zeklau gadol baTorah. This is the great principle of the Torah. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great principle of the Torah. That's the great principle of the Torah. In other words, what is Jesus doing here? He's basically saying this is the essence of what the Torah is about. What the Torah is about. It is about complete love. Loving kindness. It reminds me of that famous statement of the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good for you and what does the Lord require. But to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now notice, each of us takes... First, to do justice. That's the minimum. That's what is hateful to yourself, do not do to another. To love kindness, but to go beyond that, to exercise the loving kindness that God has, the chesed of God, and share that with your fellow human beings. But always to do that, to walk humbly with your God, because who's your audience in doing all this? It's God, not other human beings. Jesus is re-pristinizing the Torah in the prophetic tradition. He is re-pristinizing the Torah in the prophetic tradition. And let me leave you with one further linguistic clue. What does the word Torah mean? What? No, what does the word Torah mean? What? Teach Who said teaching? Congratulations. You get the A+. Plus. 
It doesn't mean law. It means divine instruction. It comes from the root moreh, a teacher. Hara, to teach. I think one of the most beautiful images of God that is totally underdeveloped in our theology is the idea of God as our teacher. The whole process is an educational process. And our fundamental teacher is God. Do we have okay. a question? Right. Okay, so one of the things that the sticky wicket is that you, what is taught, this is what you give somebody with that disease. You find out that that drug is a much worse than a disease. First, do no harm. Well, you've done it. All that goes to show is that do no harm can be a very, very tough thing to do. In other words, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to another. Oh boy. Well, I mean, that does not fall into neat black and white categories. It can't be translated into a simple rule book. Okay? Because there are times when what you want someone to do for you may be very painful as when a person goes to a doctor and says, don't sugarcoat it, give it to me straight. Okay? I've what the doctor's going to have to do there is cause the person a great deal of discomfort, right? I find it, do know, we know what we know until we know better. Uh -huh. you, you, you cannot be charged with something if it's the only thing that you know. You know what you know until you know better. Okay. And we're always learning. Yes, we are always learning. However, one of the other things that we also have to keep in mind, remember, the other way that people understand Torah is as law, is ignorance of the law an excuse for having violated it? No. Yeah. Thank you for that, because where does that come from, the law written on our hearts? Anybody? Paul? No, long before Paul. Jeremiah. And no one will need to teach, well, I mean, that's Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Who wants to read it? Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Okay, wait for the microphone, please. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Okay, literally, I will write it on their hearts. And we're running out of time. If you want to understand how, go to Ezekiel 36. How does God write the Torah on our hearts under the new covenant? Anybody? What's the instrument God uses to write the Torah on our hearts? What? Yes! The Spirit, I will put my Spirit within them and cause them to walk in my statutes. Okay? Now, this is what Jesus is talking about. The Sermon on the Mount is basically saying, what does it mean to have the Torah written on your hearts by the power of the Spirit? Here, let me describe it to you. This is what your life will be like, and this is what you will be like when that process is completed. Okay? Well, let's pray together before you go and ask the Lord for his help in this. Thank you, Father, for sending a prophet, a teacher, much more than that, but as we study Matthew, Jesus is our new prophet, our teacher, our rabbi. Help us not to run away from you, Lord, even though what you say sometimes seems shocking and painful. Help us run to you and be our teacher and complete our education and bring us into a state of shalom and agape. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Bye-bye. See you next week.